hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Investment Management Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and today's show is a very, very special one. You see, today's podcast features the third in a series of shows we'll do throughout the year that we're calling the Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series will provide practical advice and takeaways that focus on real life, tough lessons other industry professionals and regulators have learned on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat. Better yet, think of this type of podcast as your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert at your favorite outdoor summer patio, grab your favorite beverage, and just start talking about some of the most critical issues affecting the investment management industry. To help guide us through today's conversation, we welcome in David Curran, the Chief Sustainability and ESG Officer at Paul Weiss. As we outlined in Season 2, Episode 1 back in May, the guidance on ESG appears to be coming at us from all angles these days. And as stated in the report from the Congressional Research Service referenced in that same episode, the topic of ESG often appears to be presenting more questions than answers. What exactly does the E, S, and G cover? What does it mean to be an impact fund? What does it mean to have ESG integrated into your investment process? And perhaps most alarming for many of our listeners, why did the SEC create an ESG task force in the enforcement division? These are difficult questions. And who better to help guide us through these critical topics than Mr. Curran, an expert putting his knowledge to the test on the front lines of the ESG space every day. Suffice to say, I'm very excited to get into today's discussion. So sit back, relax, and come join our ESG summer compliance party on the patio. Now there's six words I never thought I'd say together. As we move to the interview section of today's show, we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by David Curran of Paul Weiss. David is the Chief Sustainability and Environmental Social Governance Officer at Paul Weiss. And in this role, he has several responsibilities, one to work with the firm's lawyers to help lead its sustainability and ESG advisory practice group, but also to develop and promote the firm's internal ESG practices. David is a well-renowned and recognized leader in this space, helping complex organizations build resilience. Um, in addition to his work in the ESG space, he has more than 30 years of experience in related fields of technology, compliance, risk, and, and also ethics roles. David has led many popular thought leadership conversations with senior execs on similar topics where uh, the intersection of legal compliance and risk ecosystems, transforming law, big data, uh, and even the Me Too movement. David began his career as a media trial and appellate lawyer before moving to a senior in-house legal compliance regulatory affairs type positions. He was uh, previously a senior VP and chief business officer at Fiscal Note a legal AI technology company, and has held uh, multiple senior business and legal leadership roles with Thomson Reuters, Intralinks, Integrity Interactive, uh, Havis, Virtus, and the Campbell Soup Company. David also serves as the co-chair of the New York State Bar Association's ESG Committee, which aims to educate and engage New York lawyers, law students, and faculty on ESG practices and developments through thought leadership and robust educational programs. David, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We're very excited to have you. No, my pleasure, Patrick. And I, I thought we were going to run out of time with my uh, long history, my eclectic journey, but uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. No, absolutely. And and I'm glad to to provide it because I think what it'll add, and, and again, really appreciate your expertise and thought leadership in the ESG space is it it provides people, I think, really good context into you have uh, developed expertise and in, in, in specialization in a variety of related fields. One of the things we'll talk about today is is the different frameworks <laughs> that are involved with ESG. And I think certainly your background and experience in that in that area will really be helpful. Actually, let's let's go ahead and start there. I, I think that's probably a good a good beginning for us. I would love to kind of set the table a little bit here at the beginning of our conversation on ESG. 
and how it's impacting the industry right now by talking about, if you would, please talk about some of the different frameworks involved with ESG and the overall impact of ESG that's that's uh, happening right now on the investment management industry. Yeah, and it's, I think it's a very important place to start, Patrick, to get grounded contextually. One of the challenges, especially for the legal industry, and one of the reasons why they're lagging so far behind in ESG is that the environmental, the social, and the governance pillars of ESG are not codified in law. They're also not codified by accountants. And, and the accounting industry has been far off the mark in terms of understanding how to value these various reputational risk components to an organization. So ESG as an acronym was formed maybe 15 or 17 years ago, not by lawyers, not by accountants, but by the investment community, which was looking for some way to measure the strength, relative strength of businesses that were supposed to be socially progressive, leaning into corporate social responsibility. And so they came up with this, um, this acronym, which has really haunted the industry because some of them relate uh, directly with one another, others don't relate at all. And the standards and frameworks used to measure, for example, carbon or water or waste or diversity, equity and inclusion or gender pay equity uh, or Black Lives Matter for that matter are all over the map. And there are a series of stitched together, maybe often disconnected frameworks and standards that were created often by not-for-profits for a particular purpose. So you have SASB, which is not FASB. It sounds a lot like it, but it was actually created because companies were looking for, and investors were looking for some way to measure progress against measurable, um, to measure progress against outcomes. And um, so a group, a not-for-profit got together and formed and cobbled together some standards in different industries so that you could try and find your way on the map, so to speak. And then you have the TCFB, which was uh, started probably 20 or so years ago, uh, specifically related to environmental um, challenges that companies were having, to find out how do we know if we're actually making reductions, for example, in in carbon and, and oil usage and, 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 and other variables. And so what you have is basically the kitchen sink of alphabet soup. And so you have that, and that's percolating around for years and years and years, and different industries favor different of these standards. And then regulators start getting involved. And it starts in Europe and is now definitely coming robustly to the United States, which had been on the sidelines forever in this process in terms of requirements of disclosure, for example, on climate change. And what happens is the regulators get hold of it, but they also get lobbied. And they get lobbied by different industry, uh, by uh, NGOs and the like, who favor components of different standard setting. And then they push those agendas as, as, they, as they do in lobbying. What happens is regulators get a hold of it. They cut and paste from these, quote, voluntary standards. And you have a recipe for a, a, ca a catastrophe, which is one of the reasons why we started this practice dedicated to ESG. It became so, it has become, Patrick, so complicated. But five years ago, if you misfired in this area, you certainly would disappoint consumers, constituents, and stakeholders, but there were very little consequences. You might get a, you know, a, some, a bad PR, but their companies really weren't um, having to face the consequences of not really leaning into these things, not having pressure tested their systems. That's what's changed. Right. If there's anything that has changed is these international frameworks and standards that were, quote, voluntary have now basically become de facto mandatory because of some of this regulatory scrutiny and stakeholder scrutiny. And lo and behold, it wasn't ever intended for purpose. That is not what this was designed to do. And so um, the changes, for example, in the legal industry, I know which we're going to talk about in compliance industry, um, are as a result of them trying to catch up with what I call the super law self-imposed obligations based on not-for-profit standards that a company adopts and publicly commits to. And now they're not legally required, but they reference them in their website. They reference them in sustainability reports and in some cases reference them in public disclosures, securities disclosures. And lo and behold, litigants, government agencies and other constituencies, constituencies and stakeholders 
are now challenging them, saying you didn't do what right. you said you were going to do. So it's um, it's really an amazing amalgam. I've never seen anything come about like this in my career, where usually it's started by the regulators. This is right. actually the regulators are playing catch up uh, and not very well, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really, really, really helpful context and background. And it's interesting. One of the things that sparks in my head as you're talking and you're and you're describing how the regulators are trying to kind of grab onto different elements of other standards that they've seen for you know, some of the not-for-profit frameworks or other things that they see out there. And so you you get this blending right of kind of business and data and technology and law. And it's all coming together. And I think that's part of the this like, you know, mystification. <laughs> the, there's there's a there's a mystifying impact with, with regard to ESG where people can't seem to wrap their arms fully around it. And now, as you articulated, that uh, you know, mystifying effect that's occurring is now leading to greater fears among folks that are in this space because of things like the new SEC ESG task force, right? And so to your point about, well, you know, five years ago, if you, you know, said that you were going to do something and you didn't hit it, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a tisk tisk and a shame on you, you know, publicly, you may get, you know, chastised for it. But now, right now we've got actual boots on the ground that are there to start enforcing this. So I guess a question that I would have for you is how can we, start to demystify ESG? What's what's the right way to start thinking about it? Yeah, it's a great question, Patrick. And it's it's at the core of making progress. So one of the ways is to not let everybody get hooked on the E. It tends to be polarizing. People think it's political. I don't want to get into that political debate. What people don't focus on, and I think this is where we're focused in our in our group and where we see the most traction with corporations is the G component of E and S. We're not here, nor is anybody else, to tell companies what they should stand for. That's not what I was put on earth to do. But if you are taking a position on something that you believe in as that is essential to your corporation in terms of its commitment, how are you governing it is really the essential issue. So to demystify it, for example, with compliance and legal executives is to think of it like a compliance and legal regime. Governance is governance, and governance means how do you have a policy and procedure? How do you track, measure, monitor, and report on progress against these obligations? It's not any more complicated than that. And so because it is mystified and because it seems otherworldly, almost like they're tree-hugging radicals running around in Birkenstocks, which is people's image of ESG, um, it is actually at the core of uh, virtually every major corporation's business agendas today. This is not esoteric. It is not left field. It is existential. So if a company is making a commitment, for example, to net zero in their objectives, what are the mechanisms to document that commitment, to invest in that commitment? What are the compliance elements of it that you can document that you need to track, measure, monitor? What are the systems that you're using just like you would a legal obligation, just like you would your own internal compliance obligations. When you say at a company and you have a code of conduct that says we fight against internal fraud, you have mechanisms, you have a policy or policies against it. you have training, you have uh, ways to track, measure, monitor whether people are committing fraud. It's just like that. It, and, and so the demystification is to take it into its component parts. And part of that is to disassemble ESG, look at the governance part, flip the acronym and saying, whatever you're doing in the S category, whatever you're doing in the E category, how are you governing it? Because if you're not governing it, it doesn't get done. And I don't care who your CEO is and how famous they are. And we've seen examples of that, Patrick, multiple times where very popular CEOs, very high profile, go to Davos and make commitments, but their own organization doesn't know anything about it. Imagine going out and saying, by the way, we're going to adhere to this law or this compliance obligation. Or, I, for example, many compliance obligations are not legally mandated. They're, they're internal compliance, say, for, for example, for technology and IT. Many of them are corporate sponsored. 
Imagine if they had no funding for a process to monitor, no funding for a way to track, measure, and report on these things. They wouldn't get it done. So um, to demystify it is to take it apart, saying it, this isn't esoteric. It's very tangible, actually. How do we make this a part of the what I my goal with this practice is to ritualize ESG, meaning when you go to the bank, Patrick, and you take money at an ATM, it's not there's no fanfare. There's no excitement. There's no big announcement that somebody just gave you 200 bucks. The systems work. The machine doles it out and you have a recording of it. That's a receipt that goes to you. The bank does that. It knows how much to take out of your account. ESG has not been ritualized. And the more that we demystify it and ritualize it, the more likely, so it's almost counterintuitive, the, the, the less we talk about it, the more ritualized it is, the more likely it is to be accomplished. Yeah. So that's a big component of it. The other is the lingua franca. It's complicated. And just because it's complicated doesn't mean you need, don't need to learn it. And that's what we're doing through our practice with our clients is actually creating a glossary of what these terms mean and their significance. And that's very important. And once you start learning about it, you say, oh, okay. So if I'm trying to diversify and make my board, for example, more equitable and inclusive, that means that I have a starting point, a baseline. Who do we use as recruiters? What's the, on, what's the um, process for screening candidates? It's all mechanics. It's not mystical at all. It's if I want to hire a, a director of color or a woman, um, LBGTQ, person, however you want to look at that fabric, you better have a process for that. How do you hire them? Who do you use as a recruiter? Do, are you using minority-owned recruiters? Um, are you funding them properly? Is there visibility into them? Do, are you getting good candidates? All of those things, if you take it into its component parts, are, are, are make it demystified. Yeah. There, you said a couple of things in there that I think are incredibly important and and even bear repeating and and that's stand out to me. I mean, one, I I absolutely am a full throated supporter of the of what you said about flipping the G to the front. I mean, it's so that does in a lot of ways make the E and the S parts start to make sense when you think of the E and the S parts are going to be often commitments that the company is making on its own accord. So then how are you setting up the proper governance policies and procedures to make sure that you're accomplishing that? And and I just think that's so important. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. The other thing that you brought up that I think is really important is finding common ground when it comes to the language that we're using to even describe what we're talking about, right? So the the idea that that you would want to work with groups and work with companies to make sure that, you know, words matter, <laughs> the meaning behind words matter. And sometimes different terms of art can have very specific impacts into what a company's overall commitment or on the flip side, what their kind of disclosures and other stuff might actually mean to the person reading them. So I think both of those points are really important. And I, I can see why firms would struggle with ESG without being able to, to kind of go through some of that cadence to make sure that folks are in fact speaking the same language. One thing I would add, Patrick, as I'm thinking about it, there's a lot of cynics who say, well, once the compliance and legal execs get a hold of this thing, then it's going to take all the teeth out of it and it's going to water it down literally. And it's going to you know, the companies will will actually uh, not commit to important, for example, environmental commitments. I actually think the opposite is true. Once again, if you pressure test it and you you're, I call it predicting a friend of mine called it predicting the present. If you have a sense of what you're doing and you have all your you know, if you're playing a, a card game and you have 52 cards, you better put all the cards out there to know that you have 52 cards before you start the game. Many companies do not. They start with half decks and they um, wonder why they can't get two more aces to figure out how you know, to get the four aces because they're in the other deck that they're not looking at. And that's what's true at ESG. These have been run by very well-intentioned groups, uh, sustainability, terrific people, HR, uh, procurement, but they don't have the ability enterprise-wide that compliance and lawyers do. And so it's actually the opposite. The thing that needs to get done the most if it's not elevated to that level, it won't get done. I don't care how much those regimes push it, because at the end of the day, the bet the company matters, the big reputational issues and the high risk matters are handled by lawyers, compliance and the risk regime. Nothing gets done 
right. without being an, an analysis of the risk consequences for these things. So once you've done that and you can say, listen, we have a path and a trajectory to achieve this, it will get done because then it's committed to, it's documented. And if it's in your securities filings, you, you better damn well adhere to it or you're going to be in trouble. So the lawyers will make sure it gets done. <laughs> and it, so it has the opposite effect. So it's, it's quite interesting. It's again, a lot of ESG is counterintuitive. And so anyway, I just wanted to point that out. No, no that's a great, great point. No, thank you for, for adding that. It's actually, a, I think, a pretty good segue into another item that I wanted to ask you about, because you talked about the different groups inside of an organization that might ultimately touch or have a hand in or be involved in the overall kind of ESG you know, policy and, 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 and the framework that's being built, but then certainly on the execution side. And it's on that execution side, I guess I would ask, how does technology play a role here? And, and how important is it to have a technology process to address uh, you know, the, the ESG issues involved with your, with your specific organization? So Patrick, it's a, without technology and, and, and even more importantly, a process leading to the technology, le- leveraging technology, you won't accomplish your objectives. And we've seen this with companies. It's, the world is too complicated, especially for the kinds of companies we work with, large global organizations. There's no way you can track, measure, monitor these activities, but also the emerging laws, rules, and regs. It's, it's coming in the dozens and the hundreds. So literally every day, there's a new thing coming out of the EU or US states or the federal government, rule, regulation, law. Um, there's no way you can do that manually. Uh, with at least without great expense. And so there are, you know, that plus workflow. What we've been recommending to companies that especially that have invested in governance risk and compliance platforms, GRC platforms, is that ESG obligations and commitments should are exactly like other compliance obligations. So why aren't you putting them in the workflow process that you have for everything else? So technology is critical to be able to cut through that. You need to be able to leverage the horsepower of computers and computing to do what, and and this is one of the reasons why a lot of companies are struggling here. They're manual, they're siloed. People say, Dave, you're an expert in ESG. And I I actually, my response is, I'm an expert in corporate dysfunction. And corporations are not conspiring most of the time. They actually can't get out of their own way. And they have one group is doing X, another group is doing Y, and they don't know that they're each doing that. Um, and that's any complex large organization, law firms, consulting firms, businesses. It's not. And so you need technology. You need dashboarding. You need metrics and analytics. ESG is one of the dirty secrets of ESG is that the data underlying what companies are committed to is awful, is, is often pretty flimsy. It hasn't been audited. It's not pressure tested. And billions, if not trillions of dollars of decision making is underway based on flawed data. And so you need improved technology to cut through the data, to look at reports, to, to slice and dice like you would other strategic elements of your business to make sure that you've got the right information. I'll give you a quick example. If I'm a company, a portfolio company for private equity business, and, they, and I have a, a whole financial regime, and I report numbers to my owner, the owner doesn't just say, hey, thank you, we'll take your EBITDA commitment for next year. They audit this stuff. They pressure test it. They probe it. They analyze it as they should. Right. Most of the times that's not done with ESG data. So they simply accept it. Mm-hmm. So if human resources provides diversity, equity, inclusion data, it's not challenged. And that is what's changing today. And that's what compliance groups are keen and very well equipped to do. Audit protocols, selecting out examples and really challenging. And you need technology to keep track of the stuff to, you know, and you need uh, technology to, to manipulate the data and leverage the data. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, sometimes companies, they can't get out of their own way when it comes to this kind of stuff. And it can be really, really difficult. And I guess that kind of connecting the dots of in the ESG space, I would feel would be particularly kind of important and would likely affect, you know, other areas and in, in different uh, ways that uh, a firm can help provide services to clients. And so I guess it leads me to, you know, what Paul Weiss and, and your role there seem to be uh, certainly at the cutting edge of this space and, and 
the practice and the advisory services that you're building out. You know, how did uh, how did that decision get made, and 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 why ultimately did it get made? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one of the reasons it was made was there was an alignment of the planets between work that I had been doing running technology companies, as you pointed out earlier. But but I was also recognizing, having been a lawyer and having been a client, having worked at companies, that there was something big missing, Patrick. And what was missing was the connecting of the dots between content, information, content, data, technology, workflow, and what I describe as intelligent guidance systems, which is lawyers, consultants, and the like. They had been companies can't, you can't just overpromise and underdeliver and say, okay, technology is going to take care of ESG. Nonsense. Lawyers or consultants take care of ESG without technology. Nonsense. So since I've done all these things, when I was talking with the leadership uh, of Paul Weiss, which has been an incredibly progressive firm, has been involved in socially forward activities since its inception and has been involved in some of the most landmark um, matters that matter. Um, I knew that they would be receptive, having worked with them in the past on some thought leadership, to something more progressive, a, a, a sort of more modern look at this, what I saw as the, a catastrophe, frankly, in the making. Without lawyers, without the best legal minds involved, um, this was like a, a big ship heading for a set of rocks. It had really great cargo on it, but it was not going to make it through the passage. And the way to make it through the passage is the combination of strategic, super smart guidance from your counselors, your consigliere's, coupled with having the right data, the right information at the right time, and then using that to make very important decisions that build business and reduce risk. And so the reduction of risk is obviously what lawyers do and compliance executives do, but at the same time, they also need to be counselors to help companies meet their business objectives. And that's the modern part. So by combining technology, process, content with lawyering in this practice that's, I think, unique, focused on those elements together, then you have a holistic solution. People talk about holistic solutions, but they don't actually offer them for the most part. Their holistic solution is them. We, In our practice, we actively partner with technology companies. We actively partner with complementary um, uh, consultants who do things that we don't do. And we actively complement uh, and work with partners on content sets, um, on things that you need to access, and bringing that to clients in proactively rather than waiting for them to ask. That's the change for lawyers, mm -hmm. being proactive, being strategic, and not being reactive, which is generally how lawyers are. And so Paul Weiss had the foresight and vision. Brad Karp, our chairman, is a remarkable leading light. And I don't say that lightly. He is one of the rare breeds who got it and understood that clients needed these guidance systems. They needed counseling as well as a linkage to the ecosystem that exists in ESG. Mm -hmm. What would you say as your, uh, if I could ask you to kind of prognosticate, you know, to put on your, your best soothsayer hat here um, as we look forward, what are some of the biggest challenges in moving the ESG conversation forward generally, and then even more specifically, you know, like at, at the company level? So first off, the inspiration that we got from this disaster of COVID um, and the protests of 2020 helped supply the fire that may have been not lit for companies to realize this stuff is really serious. If you ask somebody in 2019 whether somebody working at a restaurant was an essential worker, I bet I know the answer 100% of the time, with the exception of, the, of course, the people working in the restaurants. The entire prism changed. That, coupled with, as I mentioned, the regulatory shift and the Biden administration in particular in the U.S. is making up for about 90 years of lost time here, as, as many of the regulators have been completely on the sidelines. Now, I'm not talking about the EPA, which has obviously been focused in, in environmental and Department of Labor, but they haven't been looking at it from a strategic ESG uh, perspective. So when the Department of Labor has made requirements related to understanding gender, race within your organization, they didn't do it with the, the notion that they were going to be, that companies were going to be required to disclose these to investors. They did it 
to gather labor statistics. And then in the case where a company might be accused of doing something wrongful, that they would have that evidence. But they, but that's shifted now. The whole reason you're looking at that is, can, how do we get more people of color? How do we get more diverse candidates into companies for a business imperative? So matching that business imperative with disclosure requirements is the new art form. So it's the fire that has been lit for companies to say, you know what? We're not waiting around for you to do this voluntarily anymore. It's going to be required. Stakeholders, the other thing that shifted is the microphone and platform social media has given to individuals. You know, if a young girl from, from the Nordic states can, you know, bring a, com- a country, uh, you know, a world to its knees to listen, anything can happen. So activist agendas, activists, um, NGOs have a platform that they simply didn't have. And they can move mountains with it. They can shift how companies work. And so part of what is companies are trying to do now is, as I said, mentioned before, they're trying to predict the present so they can catch up with their own organizations. One of the things we found very interestingly, Patrick, in the first 15 months of this practice is that companies are doing great things. They're, they're all, they are doing amazing things, but they're not telling their story well. And they're not, they don't have a cohesive narrative. So one of the things our practice does is look at the various postings, their, on, their online sources, their sustainability reports, these other uh, documents that they put together, and trying to bring a, a more systemic approach to it where the bureaucracy doesn't do things in isolation and they don't even know what their own commitments are and don't even know what they've said publicly and what they're doing publicly committed to. They're making some amazing progress, but they're not doing a great job of telling that story. So we're helping them tell that story. And telling that story in a way that isn't going to enhance their risk profile. Yeah, no, that I, I really appreciate that thoughtful, I think, framework to, to build up because but it actually is a perfect segue into my next question, which was going to be for a uh, let, let's say you you got a new client and they said to you, look, you know, we've we've been deficient you know, what should we do now? How, how do we approach it? And you, you mentioned predicting the, the present. I imagine that's going to probably be something that you're going to look at. But what are what are some other things that, that you're going to, if you get that new client and they say, you know, help us tell our story, um, even though, or, or even if they ask, you know, we, we think we've been deficient or uh, we, we know we need to kind of up our game in this space. What do we do? What's your response to that? Yeah, it's, it's, and there's a lot of answer. There's a complex answer to that. It's a lot packed in there. So I'll try and peel it, peel it a little bit. The first order of business is it's like a 12-step program. Acknowledging that you don't have all the answers as a company is a great start. The thing about ESG and one of the reasons why lawyers, compliance, and risk, and finance people have stayed away from it is because you actually never achieve it. And that is something that you have to come to terms with. You'll never be perfectly governed. You'll never be perfectly socially engaged and you're never gonna be perfect from an environmental standpoint by definition. Mm -hmm. So companies that have 72 manufacturing facilities and even if they do somehow by a miracle achieve net zero by a certain date, tomorrow they could be not net zero. They could have a problem at a plant that's spewing carbon into the air because of a malfunction. Social on the social basis, do you ever think you're going to declare victory and be completely diverse and inclusive as a company? If you do, stay away from that company. It's, <laughs> it's a ridiculous concept. And so from a governance standpoint, if you declare, yes, we're perfectly governed, we think our board is perfect, we think our management is perfect, another ridiculous kind of position. So if you put that together, the first thing you do is to recognize what are the, it's like a SWOT analysis. You look at the strengths, the weaknesses that a company has, and you have to be open about it. And that's one of the reasons why we have this practice. We have an open discussion to say, what do you think you're doing well here? What do you think you've been missing yourself? Most companies, if you ask your employees and management, they actually know what they're missing. It's not a great mystery. So if if they think that their company should be reducing plastic, because guess what? NGOs and consumers have been complaining about their plastic usage. How are they doing on that? Objectively. So if they don't know or they haven't been measuring it, so first order of business is, Know it, and then let's figure out a measurement process. What standards should we use? A lot of our clients come to us, Patrick, and ask us what standards, and should we do SASB and TCFD? So we, we, what we do there is, what are your business objectives? What do you want to disclose? Because this is going to be disclosable. What do you want to disclose to investors and to regulators? Because you should be prepared for public scrutiny. Uh, so that's the pressure testing part of it. 
What kind of data are you getting and where are you getting it from? What are the sources within your organization um, for the information that you're relying on? Are they reliable sources? Have you pressure tested? Is there any audit mechanism? Do you trust the information? A lot of companies are segueing from ESG to trust. They're using the term trust. Do I trust this company? And what that means is, am I living up to the commitments that I have made or that have been imposed on me by government? One or the other. And what happens is if you look at an investor and an investor is asking a question, how do you answer it? So we work with our clients through that process. If I'm a skeptical or cynical investor, or I'm an NGO, or I'm a government regulator, and I ask you this question, how would you answer it? A lot of times the company has a good answer, but they don't quite know why. So then we help them document that and say, okay, so maybe you could beef up a policy here or there, or you maybe you could make your sustainability report more consistent with what you've said online, with what you've said in your, in your securities filings. So it's a lot of um, hard work, rolling up your sleeves, stuff that lawyers and compliance executives and, and teams do really well. This is not something that some of these other groups have done well over the years. They're, you know, compliance people understand when third parties audit or review your materials. It's not a right. surprise. It's not a surprise to a compliance regime that they're going to be audited. It is a surprise to sustainability offices. Yeah, uh, they don't like being audited, and so we bring that to the to the table to say you need to bring that lens. And you can't look at everything. What are your priorities? How do you triage them? What do you do? Very importantly, Patrick, when you when you have a gap, the biggest issue of this decade is going to be transparency, trust, and transparency. When you don't report something, a lot of people think they think conspiracy. I actually think it's either conspiracy of fools or this dysfunction. Most of the time, companies don't even know what they're doing and how they're doing it. So we help them connect the dots to themselves and help them reflect on what they're already doing and how they could enhance that. Because chances are, if it's a company that's been doing business for a while in an important area, they're doing something good. There's a reason why they're in business and there's a reason why consumers or business customers trust them. One of the things that I so appreciate in that response, which was excellent, and and again, I think is really helpful, is I can actually think, you know, in, in thinking about our listeners to this show, with and the backgrounds that they would all bring to bear, describing things in a way where we are going to pressure test this in a, in a similar way to the way that you pressure test all of your ongoing policies and procedures on an annual basis right now anyway, right? Most firms uh, are, are required to do an annual review and, and a risk assessment, and they go through and they use testing that they've done throughout the year to help evaluate that and help inform that annual review. And then ultimately, it's their chance to kick the tires and to do a review and see where, where you need to improve. I, you talk about wanting to demystify ESG. I think I think your response there and, and this podcast hopefully is helping to do that with a lot of the folks that are listening because... That is something that is very relatable to compliance officers, to general counsels and legal practitioners and consultants that are in this space and that are doing that work. They're doing that every day right now. ESG can just essentially become an extension of that. That's right. The the train tracks are there for most well-run organizations. Otherwise, they wouldn't be uh, well-run. And so the demystification you mentioned earlier, Patrick, is putting like with like and making it not, it's not esoteric and it's not just the CEO's interest in furthering the common good. It's, this is good for business. Reducing carbon is good for business because you won't have a business if you don't eventually because we'll all burn up and we won't have any oxygen to breathe. And that's been, that's been proven. That's, that's something that, that some folks have tried to cover over, but it, the reality is it's a no brainer. If you're a company and you waste and you pollute the waters, consumers will leave you. One of the interesting things you and I talked about earlier is the flow of money into ESG funds. So that's for real. They're outperforming other funds, period. All the data is there. Companies that are have more women and people of color in management and, and then their board perform better. The data is there. It's long term. I'm not making it up. It's not my view. It's not, my, it's not just that it's popular. It's the reality. Diverse views in companies make for better companies that are more resilient. So the resiliency aspect is really critical to ESG. Companies that want to be in business 10 years from now have to do these things. They're not voluntary and whether they like it or not. So again, I'm not the judge and nor are they what their companies in. If they don't like it, they can leave their company. But at the end of the day, they 
I look at this as just like an obligation from the, uh, the um, you know, the if I'm in a food company like I used to be, the FDA requiring it. Let's not make it all that. They say to do it. I remember, you know, the USDA and FDA requirements. Nobody argued with them. There was no debate. So the thing about ESG, they're still debating these things. And that's going to shift because there's no time for debate. The adversaries, the activists, the, the NGOs are so much better at this, three-dimensional chess. If you look at what's going on in these uh, shareholder proxy battles, they're beating companies who used to own the space and they're beating them at PR, they're beating them at strategy, and they're actually making huge progress. And why is that? Because companies are still fighting the inevitable. At the end right. of the day, whether you like it or not, it's game over on this. You better do these things or you're not gonna have business customers or consumers. You don't have to like it, but the reality is there for virtually every business. And the businesses that do that outperform. So if you look in the retail sector, look at Walmart and Target, uh, these kinds of companies, they have thrived in COVID. That's not by accident. One, they're incredibly well-run companies. They, they're financially sound, which by the way, is part of ESG. Being over leveraged and having too much debt is not good for governance. FYI, that's a governance issue. It's not esoteric. If you have too much debt, you can't pay your debt and you're teetering on bankruptcy. When COVID hit, a number of these companies um, went under right away because they had too much debt and some industries overall. If you look at the airline industry, a number of companies that were well-run are coming nicely out of COVID and doing well. Others had a real problem. They hadn't dealt with their employment issues, human capital. We haven't talked at all about that. Human capital is enormous. If you have alienated your employees and have been adversarial with them for years, the day of reckoning is here. If you're, if you're not paying what people consider a living wage, the, the reckoning is here. They're not going to put up with it anymore. And so, so either you get with that program or you're going to find yourself at a competitive disadvantage. Forget legal problems or compliance issues. You're not going to be in business. And right. so companies that, that invest in that, that make it transparent, and I also identify where they're not perfect, which is a key to ESG that's very different than traditional lawyering, where you, you, you hide the ball. In this case, you have to put the ball out in front and say, right. we have not done this. Because if you don't do that, you're going to get sued because you didn't disclose <laughs> it. And so that's also counterintuitive for lawyers. Yeah, that's a good, I, actually, that's, I would love to dig into that point a little bit because I, I do, I think it would be interesting. I would love to get your thoughts on um, when it comes to those disclosures, uh, often, you know, the, these kind of non-financial disclosures that, that we have and that firms put forward, you know, what would be your advice or what are some best practices when it comes to firms that now, let's say they finally, you know, they, they have finally acknowledged, <laughs> might be the right term, that they need to do this, right? So it could be company or again, in, in our space on the investment management side, it could be in an advisor that is running a fund, right? That's that's a, a an ESG fund or an impact fund or something like that. What are some best practices or what would be some advice you would have for some of those non-financial disclosures? One is I don't, I don't believe there's a such thing as a non-financial disclosure. And I'm a contrarian in this. If you have a corporation, and I'm talking now for a for-profit corporation, everything has a price, everything. It could be a dollar or a million dollars or a billion dollars, but every single action you take or action you don't take has a financial consequence for your business. As I mentioned earlier, Patrick, the fact that the accounting industry hasn't figured this out yet and is, is trying to now, they're trying to get, it, get, get in time with this. But the fact that they haven't been able to value intangibles of, of reputation doesn't mean they're not valuable. Long ago, the intangible value of companies' assets uh, lapped the physical value. If you look at Apple, does anybody care about the physical assets of Apple relative to its intangible value? No. Its intangible value is it's the go-to company trusted to do amazing things, to provide every, basically everything, including, I think, cleaning your bathroom these days. So. Its reputation is everything. And I'm not picking on Apple. They're, uh, they're doing a good job. But uh, Colgate-Palmolive, Campbell Soup Company, where I used to work, the cost of the cans and the manufacturing is important. But the cost of the reputation that goes into that can is everything. The brand. I, I was the trademark lawyer for, for Campbell Soup. And our, the, the brand value far outweighed any tangible physical assets. So the first order of business is having an inventory of your intangible assets. What are your reputational assets? What are your goals and objectives for the E and the S. 
What are you doing? What are you leaning into? What is important to your company? And what are the mechanisms that you have in place to achieve those commitments? And really don't let yourself out of the room as a group until you answer those questions. So we actually do tabletop exercises with clients that are directed exactly at that. Who owns this um, objective? And what happens if you don't meet it? That's a simple question. And, and so that's a best practice. Um, and be objective and open and honest about it. Don't have the politics of, well, we're doing a great job in diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you're not doing a great job, which is most companies, by the way. This is a struggle, not because they're not trying, but because it's really difficult to achieve. Right. Right. Uh, the media doesn't understand this one at all. It's very challenging. So how are you doing? How are you? What are the mechanisms you have? The second is cutting across the enterprise and blowing through these silos. ESG and is, is the reputational blowback in this area is going to be ginormous compared to anything we've seen before. So there's no tolerance for different silos within your organization not talking with each other. How can you not know what your lawyers are doing, what your HR department is doing, what your sustainability group, CSR group are doing, your DE&I groups, et cetera? How are you not communicating those things? And that's happening as we speak today, Patrick. Companies are doing sustainability reports without their lawyers being involved at the outset. It's outrageous and it's stupid. And so, um, and I, say, I would say that to any client, you cannot allow something that goes public of that significance to not be reviewed by a, a cross-section of people. As I mentioned, check the data sources and really probe them. And then the key is can't solve all problems. What are you going to lean into and what are you not going to lean into and why? The decision of what you're not going to do is almost as important as what you're going to do. What are you going to prioritize? You can't do 27 things well. What 12 things are you going to do as a company well? And how are you going to document it? And how are you going to deal with challenges? So what's your preparation? Um, I ran a company called Risk Readiness, and the whole idea, Patrick, was to be prepared for the likely scenarios. One of the scenarios that we had in that company was pandemic planning. And I remember all of the clients laughing at me saying, you know, you have to give me a more realistic scenario. Well, I think every scenario should be on the table today. And I, I, again, I know I'm not, I'm not Nostradamus. I can't predict things. But I do know what the science says, what the market forces say, and we do know what investors are asking for. The major investors in the world are demanding this information, and the regulators are going to be demanding about the demands. So if you're hiding from that, if you're not pressure testing yourself, you're going to have consequences somewhere in that stakeholder set. So doing your homework, pressure testing, identifying gaps. And, and using your lawyers and compliance executives to do that, like you would identify gaps in other areas. And then what's your remediation plan? How are you going to how are you going to address those gaps? Mm -hmm. Very methodical, not emotional, not esoteric. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I want again, that that's really helpful because it helps frame, I think, uh, a, a couple of follow up questions. The, the, the first is. You know, certainly in in the, just my own anecdotal experience on this front, I, I have seen many, many more investment advisors, other financial institutions that are providing enhanced disclosures as it relates to ESG, and and even more so now, you're starting to you're starting to see it creep quite a bit more into. The marketing aspects of, yeah. of the business, right? And so there's obviously there's there's new issues and conflicts involved there. Have you seen that too? Just I mean, generally, I guess I'll ask that there's been in the investment management space specifically, this, you know, kind of a, a bit of a push or a flight towards certain types of funds or certain strategies, right? Calling themselves green funds, calling themselves impact funds. And just what what's your general sense there? Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Patrick. The um, the investment industry has changed dramatically, and that's mainly due to market forces. It's a very competitive environment, and major institutional investors, the biggest in the world, have changed the playing field literally overnight. With the business roundtable and those kinds of initiatives, it's forced all of these investors out into the open about how they're doing things. And if you don't have a strong ESG program as an investor or a thesis, you're going to be left out. Um, that mark, we talked about the market flow, the funds flow. Well, there's just 
uh, the thing about companies is it's not just regulators they have to worry about. They have to worry about investors completely abandoning their stock overnight, which is happening to companies. They're literally, you're getting into the naughty list and you're gone. And that may not be fair. It may not be rational, but that's exactly what's happening. So those market forces are very strong. And one of the challenges for the industry, Patrick, is that there aren't enough green investments to satisfy and satiate this massive amount of money that's available for green investment. The, the, the dirty little secret is that there are very few companies that are really green and they're small. They're not mammoth companies. You don't have multi-billion dollar companies yet in some of these spaces. So what happens is you have these investors and asset managers throwing money at uh, some companies. Some of their founders are shocked by the inflow and the, and the offerings because they have a tinge of green in their in their offerings. So they race to those companies right. and, and overpay for those assets. And then when you get under the hood, you find out maybe it wasn't such a great and, and there was not enough diligence done. A lot of cursory diligence. It's one of the changes lawyers need to make. And the lawyers are far from achieving this right now. They're still working off of an old playbook, too. Diligence mm-hmm. has to shift dramatically within, within ESG lens. And so these asset managers, um, we talk to them all the time. Uh, alternative investment companies are trying to set up impact funds. And they want to make sure they do the right thing. They do want to invest in good companies. They want, so they're coming in with a much more rigorous approach. And that's some of it's required by their limited partners, for example, and those investment vehicles but also by private wealth, family wealth funds. Um, everybody's on this bandwagon and the genie's out of the bottle. Um, I still see people thinking this is going to go back to the good old days when they didn't have to do this. And, and there are a lot of skeptics around this, including a lot of lawyers and accounts. They're wrong. This is over. That that match is over and won. This is not. Now, there will be morphs and, and things will change. But the fact is that if they think that the major investors in the world are suddenly going to abandon their commitments here, they're wrong. They're, it's not going to happen. Microsoft, which is an amazing company doing amazing things in the space, is not going to, in 2030, say, you know, by the way, that net zero pledge, we're not doing that anymore. That's not happening. They're, they have to meet them. And so, and they want to meet them. And the other thing we haven't talked about at all on the human capital front, um, and this is true for lawyers, compliance regimes, as well as others, risk management regimes, is recruitment and retention. Mm-hmm. Um, people want to work, especially my, I have three adult daughters, they want to work for companies with a purpose. And they're, they're acting with their feet. They're either going to work for a company or not going to work with a company that they think has a purpose or doesn't have a purpose. Again, I'm not the judge of whether they do or not. I'm not here to tell them right or wrong, but they're making those decisions. And so back in the day, if you wanted to work at a huge investment banking firm, you had a few options and you had, if you wanted to make that kind of money and be in that kind of life, you had to go. They're not doing that anymore. They can go work for a tech company. They can work for an innovative, you know, a bio. Right. So they, they, they know they have choices. They also don't have loyalty. Why would they? So they can be portable. If their company is not living up to its own ESG commitments and that's public, they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, the cost of recruit, retention and recruitment is higher than almost everything else. To be able to, to have a workforce today um, uh, that wants to work for your organization and stay with your organization is a huge cost. Yeah. And this is where human resources groups have not caught up with reality. The recruitment process, the way in which they incentivize, the legal industry is very much guilty of this, is just old school. Mm-hmm. They need to figure out how, why do people want to work or not work with an organization? It's not just about money. It's not just about brand anymore. Right. When I was growing up, Patrick, you made the decision based on it was a good company. I could make a good living. I could do something important. Today, it's much more complicated, the matrix. And the first order of business for major, for, for these decisions often is I wouldn't work for that company no matter how much they paid me is what I hear. Yeah. And, that's not the kind of raft you want to have as a company. You want to be able to attract, how do I attract STEM candidates? How do I attract more women to the workplace? Well, you better have an environment that's welcoming to women and to, and to people of color. That's just the math. And that's mm-hmm. the reality of it, especially as our company changes in terms of the demographic psychographics of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not a company that Latinx, the Latinx community favors, you're going to miss out on 35% of the American population. Right. That's a mistake. So that's why companies have to do this as a business imperative. Yeah. 
Let's, I've got one more question for you and then we'll, we'll get you out of here with, with just a real quick fun question at the end. The one more question for you is if you tomorrow, let's say uh, the Biden administration named you the ESG czar of the United States. Okay. So uh, in, in this fun hypothetical, what, what's the one or two things, what are the one or two things that you're going to do to push the conversation forward to help, you know, approach the issue of ESG? Well, we talked a lot about demystifying it. I think that's important. It isn't esoteric. It's real. And it's here and it's here to stay. So let's end the debate on whether this is a moral imperative or a business imperative. They are one and the same today. They are joint. So that's one. As, and if I had the power of a czar, it would be to get people together to actually de- demystify together and have a joint learning experience. What I have found in, in the work that I do in roundtables, you mentioned my thought leadership. One of the main reasons I did it, Patrick, was because I didn't think people were talking about real issues, genuine issues off the record. So the first order of business is to get leaders together and have an open discussion about the kinds of things we've talked about here. Um, doing this in silos, pocketed and, and spinning it by marketing is not solving the problem. So you need to get marketing together with investor relations, together with legal and have a discussion, open discussion about what does your company stand for? What mm-hmm. does doing the right thing mean at your organization? How do you live ethics? How do you, because this is what this is about, whether people like it or not. It's, are you doing the right thing or the wrong thing? If you're polluting, that's the wrong thing. And you may not think that, but so you don't get that vote anymore. <laughs> so so that's the thing that shifted. Back in the day, you could pollute and get away with it. You can't do that anymore, at least in, in the more, in, in, in the economies like the US and Europe. So right. the czar would be, stop the debate, stop fighting and arguing over who, you know, what's, on, what's the size of the plate on the table. We got to eat dinner. And so what are we going to have for dinner? How are we going to prepare it? That's what you should be focusing on. Got it. David, this has been incredible. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today and providing such insightful and thoughtful comments around what is an incredibly challenging issue for many, many, many of our listeners. The last question I've got for you is, it's a little softer than some of the earlier ones, which is just, uh, what's the best thing that you have seen either movie or TV show over the last six months? I love, I'm terrible with names, but the movie, the the four part series, I think it was with Hugh Grant. Uh, I forget the name of it now. Uh, Terrific. It was on, I think on Netflix or or Um, was that it was a thriller where he was a pediatrician, a pediatric oncologist. Okay. Um, Amazing, amazing show. There are a lot of good ones. I mean, uh, uh, for for older people, uh, the um, uh, the Kaminsky method is fantastic. Uh, okay, which is outstanding. A, a nice binge watch with uh, Michael Douglas. <laughs> okay, and um, so yeah, you're right. Over the, the, the last months, we've had a chance to look at some of these shows. <laughs> you certainly have, David. Th- thank you so much. Uh, uh, please enjoy the rest of your week. Really appreciate you coming on the show, and w- would love to have you back on the show here here at some point down the road. Patrick, thank you. Delighted to participate. And I'm, I, I, I'd be honored to, to come back uh, and also have some wonderful people in this in this space that you should talk to that are doing some great work at, at the companies we work with. Excellent. Thank you so much, David. Take care. Bye bye. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, David Curran, for coming on the show to share his invaluable insights on the issues surrounding ESG and how it impacts the investment management industry today. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. A couple quick housekeeping items. First, we will be taking a couple weeks off from the regular show in order to finish the Reg BI Masterclass. Over five hours of expertly crafted content over five episodes analyzing the four components of Reg BI and culminating with a fifth and final episode focusing on how firms can best prepare for an examination in the space. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to become a member of the NSCP so you can get access to all that amazing content at no additional cost. The second housekeeping item is that if you have a story or topic that you think would make a great Lessons from the Front Lines episode, please let us know. Not only would we love to hear from you, but you could have a chance to be featured on an upcoming episode of the Compliance and Context podcast. 
Check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 